Well, if you get your Bible out, open to John chapter 11, page 1238 in the Pew Bible in front of you, so you can follow along. We're going to finish up the 11th chapter of John. We are just working our way through the Gospel of John. We're calling this section of John, Follow. It's really, uh, in this section, the Gospel really just zeroes in on uh, the mechanics and the specifics of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, every week there's a, a lesson somewhere in the text to teach us and help us understand what it truly is to follow, not just to say that we believe, but to be a follower. And uh, last week, Pastor Matt went through the story of Lazarus and the raising of him from the dead, and what an amazing and wonderful passage it was, and what a great time we had just considering the reality of the power of the Word of God and how he, just through his omnipotence and his, uh, his, his knowledge of all things and his power to be able to just call Lazarus forth right out of the grave. Uh, just amazing. We saw how the death of Lazarus really, it, it served as a, a showcase for God's love and power and glory, just as God said that it would, as Mary and Martha were a little bit confused about what's going on and why did you wait to come, Lord? And if you can, if you can heal, why didn't you heal? And you love Lazarus and he's your friend and we got to see that what started out as confusion turned out to be this wonderful opportunity to glorify God just as he said that it, it would. Remember in verse 40, if you just look down in your Bible to verse 40 in chapter 11, where Jesus asked Martha this question, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And that's what ultimately happened, right? And so it's just another opportunity for us to, to see and to say and to drive this point into our, our hearts and our consciousness that uh, those who gain a greater glimpse, who see the works of God around them, uh, are those who believe in God's perfect timing and purpose and who wait on Him and, and don't trust in their understanding or in the message that our circumstances are telling us. That's the lesson Mary and Martha didn't understand. They were looking at their circumstances. They were looking at what they could understand. It didn't make sense to them. They couldn't see how this thing could turn out to be good. And yet, look at what ultimately happened. And the lesson for us is, is that to see a greater glimpse of the glory of God, we have to trust in Him and His sovereignty and His perfect timing and His plan. And so, all, all week, I've just, in my mind, just had, uh, I can't help but smile when I think about th these times after Lazarus was raised from the dead. And uh, I, I think we get confused about what that must have been like for him. I'm going to pray in a minute, by the way. I'm just, I can't help it. I'm just excited about Lazarus. You know, he, the next day, we're, you know, they're eating breakfast maybe in the house. And, you know, he says to his sisters, y'all, I I'm sorry for all the money you spent on my funeral. You know, if he had a prearranged funeral, well, he's like, well, we're going to have to get another one. And we have to do that twice. He's the only one in history ever had to do that. He, uh, you know, people, I think we think that Lazarus was running around really uh, excited. 
I think he might have been a little bit excited just mainly because of how maybe how special it made him feel that Jesus chose him to, to do that with. But everyone else was more excited than Lazarus was. Because you realize the bummer in that moment that you awake and your back stuck in this dump. You know, it's hard to get excited about rice cakes after you had filet mignon. And so everything for him after that moment had to be this, no matter what anybody said, you know, he was like, yeah, that's not that great. It's, I, I've seen better. And uh, never has there been a person who was so looking forward to death as Lazarus. I mean, that guy was probably chain-smoking, you know, trying to... <laughs> Am I the only one that thinks about this? Like, I'm just thinking of all the things that were going on. I mean, it was crazy. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we are grateful this morning that we get to be together. We thank you, Father God, that it's perfect and it's inerrant and it is our greatest earthly gift and possession. We thank you, Father, for what you desire to do among us today. We thank you for this specific text that you bring us to today, Lord, and we pray that you'll use it in our lives for your glory. We, we know, Lord, that we are needy and what we need is for you to give us ears to hear and for you to through the power of your spirit, prepare our hearts to receive that we would rightly respond to what we hear. And God, we give you praise and glory in advance for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, he was, there had to be this great disappointment. I don't know how you could see what he's seen. And what a, man, what an evangelist. We all ought to be. All right, let's begin reading this morning. John chapter 11. Look at verse 45. So responding to the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus still in Bethany. Verse 45, the Bible says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that this is expedient for us, that a man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for a nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into a country near the wilderness to the city of Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover in the Jew, of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus 
and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it and that they might seize him. So it seems like maybe this is just a little, you know, afterthought, a little bookmark at the end of really the, this, this great pinnacle, the story of uh, Lazarus. I would uh, suggest to you that probably, in my opinion, this is the pinnacle of the chapter because this is what builds off of what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead. And then he, he will solidify, he will uh, make clear through this text this morning exactly everything that all of our hope is built and placed in. So if you have your listening guide, you can take that out and you can uh, begin to fill in your blanks. The first thing we're going to look at, number one, is division. So Jesus performs this extraordinary miracle. And a man who was dead, I mean, not just maybe sick, but I mean dead to the point where he stinketh. He was dead for four days in the tomb. It was uh, absolutely, positively, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Everybody knew that he was dead, and now he's walking around alive. And the remarkable thing is, is that we wouldn't expect division to come from something like this. You'd think the greatest thing that had ever happened, the most remarkable thing anyone could ever witness had just happened. It would, it would, there would be unity. There'd, it would drive people together. And yet the, this section begins simply by saying that many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in Him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Now, this is the same response we saw when Jesus healed the paralytic that was by the pool. And we were astonished at that point, but we're even more astonished now because the miracles keep getting greater and greater, and yet the reaction is the same. You know, if the Bible said, well, they had, they had heard about this uh, miracle that had happened, but maybe there was some confusion about it, we might understand that there were many who believed that there were some who didn't. Uh, but to see with your own eyes a man right before you, walking around, carrying on, talking to people, living his life, who was absolutely, positively dead just a few days earlier... He was a decaying corpse. To see that with your own eyes, wouldn't you expect that this incredible revival would break out? Wouldn't you expect that there would be this unbelievable uh, flood of faith that would come into uh, this people, that all the people, at least all the people that lived in Bethany, all the people who knew Lazarus, all of them would be, become followers of Jesus? But that's not what happened. And how is it that they don't all respond rightly? How is it that they, how could you, how could you walk away from this moment and just excuse it away, explain it away? How could you know for sure that there was a dead man who by the word of another man 
got up and became alive. And there not be any implications to that. How could you just say, well, maybe that happened, maybe it didn't, or even, well, it did happen, but what does that have to do with me? How could you do that? Now, it's important for us to, that, that the Lord brought us to this text today because it illustrates the hardness of people's heart. It illustrates the fact that there are many around us whose heart is simply hard, and it doesn't matter what evidence you show them. It doesn't matter how compelling your argument is. It doesn't matter how uh, much information that you have. Their heart is hard and they simply will not see. They simply will not see. Now, we're going to be thrust in a situation this afternoon where we're going to be around thousands of people, many, the vast majority of whom do not attend church. And so we have to be careful that we don't that we don't fall into a, a, a wrong belief that, that our, uh, our obligation or, or our opportunity to be a blessing, to, to speak up, to share the gospel, to encourage people in Christ. We have to be careful that we don't fall into this trap of thinking that, you know, if we don't think it's going to be successful, that we ought not say anything. Or if we say something and it's not received, that we in some, some way failed. Listen, Jesus, Jesus was there in person. Jesus accomplished the miracle. They're there witnessing all of this with Jesus standing right before them, and they don't believe. So can we suffice it to say that if, if people are standing in the presence of Jesus while he raised a dead man to life, there's going to be a lot of times that me and you share the gospel, witness for Christ, and it doesn't yield anything, Right? So we can just erase this idea that, you know, failure is not going to be part of the equation. It's going to be part of the equation. And the response to this, the, the miraculous power of God here is division among, you've got one group of people go this way and another group of people go that way. So it just shows us that when hearts become hard, no matter what people see, they'll, they'll come up with a way around surrender. Even if it's undeniable, they're going to come up with a way around surrender. Anything but surrender. So your next blank is regardless of the evidence. It's a way we could put this in a sentence. Regardless of the evidence... There are always people who will flee to those who support their folly. You see, you ask yourself the question, well, why, why would they not believe? Well, here's what we do know. We do know that the reason they didn't believe is for a lack of evidence. See, a lot of times we think that, well, if I could just somehow... No, no, this text proves that's not the case. You could not possibly have more evidence than is right here. It's impossible. So here we have the most evidence possible, and still we have rejection and unbelief. And so, why? It's not, a, it's not an issue of evidence. It's an issue of heart. It's an issue of the hardness of people's heart. They, they want what they want. And no matter what it is, no matter how undeniable it is, 
If it comes against what I want, I'm going to find a way around it. And that's what's going on here. I mean, we've seen this throughout the book of John over and over and over where this gospel is constantly reminding us about what being a follower of Jesus is as opposed to saying that we believe. We live in a culture where uh, everyone says they believe. The last uh, research I saw said that 82% of Americans believe that God still performs miracles. Which just validates the Gospel of John. Because are 82% of Americans followers of Jesus? Well, not even close. Not even close. And so therefore, believing that God does miracles does not connect to being a follower of Jesus. Remember back in the sixth chapter of this study? So Jesus feeds eight to 10,000 people. I mean, just get your head around. I mean, we'll, we'll probably have, you know, 2,000, give or take. Who knows? Maybe even 3,000 today. But even at 3,000, imagine eight to 10,000 people on a hillside. Jesus feeds all of them with a sack lunch. Now, maybe not everybody in that, a crowd that size could have seen how it all began. Maybe knew the genesis of the food that was going all around. Didn't see the little boy with the... But here's what they did know. They knew that as they were passing these baskets around, they just didn't empty. And that it just kept going and going and going and going. And it didn't take long. I mean, people are eating and they're saying... Well, I mean, how did this happen? And they're asking questions. And so everyone there knew that something unexplainable had just happened in their midst that they had just partaken of, that it wasn't a, it wasn't a scam or a gimmick because they're eating the food. It's not a mirage. It's not an illusion. They're eating it. They're tasting it. They know. They're ingesting the miracle. They know what just happened. And yet the Scripture says in John 6, verse 66, that from that moment on, many of His Disciples left and didn't follow him anymore. And so that brings that moment when, you know, the Lord asked his disciples, are, are, do you want to go also? Remember that text? So you see, it's, it's not an issue of, of evidence. When you share the gospel, when you express to people the goodness of God and the love of Christ and the way of the Lord, we have, we have all the evidence we need. It's right there for us. And the, the Bible will stand on its own. And you don't have to make excuses for it. And there are answers for questions. But just remember that when someone has a hard heart and you, you just keep thinking that if some kind of way you could somehow show them, look at what this text teaches us. Even in the most obvious, undeniable situation there's division and why is that well I mean they find a way around surrender but really the the core of it is is that at all of these junctures across the the gospel of John it's really it's really the the demands of discipleship that bring division that's what it is. It's, it's the demand of discipleship that brings division. You see, Jesus 
is very forthright with us. In other words, he's not, there's no bait and switch with Jesus. Jesus isn't doing what, what modern Christianity is doing and trying to water things down and lull people in and try to trick them into something and, you know, sell them this easy believism and everything's going to be, you know, real simple. And, you know, you, you, you just come and, and receive forgiveness. It's the free gift of God. Well, it's free, except for it's going to cost you your life, but... But, I mean, Jesus is very blunt. I mean, he's very open. Look at these passages from Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her, his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those in his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I don't know how more clear the Lord can be. He's over and over again saying to us, just as he told the people in John chapter 6, they were grateful for the food, they were excited about Jesus, they were following him around until he said that you have to, you have to put me above even food and water, that I have to be the most important thing in your life. And that's when they said, wait a minute, this is a hard saying. We don't like this. You see, that's where it comes. It comes to a head at surrender. Some of you hate that text in Matthew chapter 10. It drives you crazy. And I would say, well, you have an idolatry, idolatry problem. It's very clear. You, ma'am, sir, cannot love your spouse, your children, anything more than Jesus, he says, or you're not worthy to follow me. Now, that's offensive to you. It's meant to be offensive to you. It's offensive to me. But here's the thing. You just start reading Scripture, and you start realizing who God is, and you start understanding, wait a minute. He's so much better than anything else. Of course. Anything as wonderful as the Lord would require preeminence just would. Think of how the priorities in Lazarus' life changed after he was raised from the dead. Think about all of the, the, the just the everyday minutia of life that he was just had no time for, that he just wasn't interested in. Think of the frivolous conversations that he no longer would participate in. Think of when he would share with people about what had happened to him. And he would, he would uh, relate to people who were yet unconverted and, and not followers of Jesus. What, 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 if somebody, what if somebody brought to him this problem with Matthew chapter 10 and said, I, I just don't get this. 
I mean, is he saying that I'm not supposed to love my family? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you should love him more. And Lazarus would say, if you knew what I knew, it, it wouldn't even be a question. It would just, you'd realize how ridiculous this whole conversation is. This is the God of the universe who has revealed himself in flesh and blood, who is bringing division in the midst of overwhelming, undeniable evidence of his power and authority over all things, and still yet brings division. Hmm. Why? I don't mean why does he bring division. We've already established that. But, but, but why does God make such a point to be so forthright and blunt with us? Almost, it almost seems as if Jesus is trying to talk people out of following him. He wants to make sure that everybody understands what he's talking about before they you know, make some Emotional decision. Well, I think the division is intentional on God's part. And I think the division is to clarify things. That Jesus wants people to know where they stand. He he wants to be sure that there's no ambiguity. He wants the world that he's engaged with to understand that there are sheep and there are goats. There's nothing in the middle. That there is light and there is darkness. There's nothing in the middle. That there's a narrow gate and a broad way and there's nothing in the middle. That he wants them to know that there's zero gray area. That you are either a beloved adopted child of God or you are destined for an eternity in hell that you have earned the wages of sin is death that have been the, you've you've devoted your life i've devoted my life to earning that there's no ambiguity and so he wants people to know that before they run around telling people that they're followers of jesus he wants them to know exactly what that means That if you don't love him more than you love the people around you, the people you love the most, if you don't love him more, you are not worthy. That's hard, isn't it? That's right. So we have division. What's the second thing that comes when the gospel begins to permeate into a people? Number two, after division, is discussion. Oh, there's always a lot of discussion. The gospel is going to create all sorts of chatter, isn't it? Look at what happens. So you've got one group that, that follows. You've got the other group that runs the tattletale to the Pharisees and the chief priests. And so here's what happens. There, this discussion ensues. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together. Oh, they get a council together. And they say, well, what are we going to do for this man works many signs? Now, again, is there any debate over the fact that he's done a miracle no it's there it's a foregone conclusion they're admitting that you see it it is nothing to do with evidence he's worked many signs they're 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 done with that they there's nothing they can do about that remember with the blind man they were like well are we sure you were blind are we sure it's not the it, did, does he have a twin brother we're not really sure about but by stinky Lazarus walking around, they're like, okay. 
We're done. So here's what they say. Verse 48. If we, if we let him alone, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Oh, that's interesting. So he's done these signs that we can't explain. What are we going to do if we leave him alone? Then people are going to follow him and the Romans are going to take away our, what's our place? Our, the temple and our nation. Oh, okay. So the, the, the discussion, uh, it, think of how illogical this whole conversation is. Jesus is doing things they can't deny and they can't explain. And so they start scrambling in this discussion that, that, that they're having. And so people who deny reality succumb to fear that distorts the future. You see, the denial is in the reality that's before them. And so what happens is we begin to get, fall into fear where we start distorting. Now we've manufactured all these things in the future that we've dreamed up are going to happen. And so when a group of unbelievers hears the gospel or is exposed to the light, they start talking. And what always happens is usually it's not a, it's not a conversation about the denial that, that God exists or the denial of whatever was presented. It's the skewing of all that and sort of this, uh, this you know, amazing ability that the 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 flesh, the human heart has to twist things around and to, to create a God that's really not the God of the Bible. It's a God that we're comfortable with. And so, because we, what we want to do is believe that there's a God but not lose our significance. You see, their concern is, is that they're going to lose their place and they're going to lose their nation. They're going to, things are going to change. How many people are there who are, have rejected the Lord Jesus because... They're afraid that things are going to change. They, they're afraid of how it's going to change. They're, and then there's, there's all of these false shepherds running around telling people, listen, things aren't going to change. You just need to receive Jesus and be forgiven of your sin and you'll have assurance that you're going to be with Him forever in heaven. But things aren't going to change. That is a lie. Your life's going to turn upside down. We need to be honest with people. Everything's going to change. That's what's going to happen. They're afraid if we don't do something, if we don't quiet this down, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna lose our way of life. Which is so wonderful because we're under Roman oppression. Isn't that wonderful? Like it's not like they're sitting on the beach in Hawaii going, you know, we better stop this Jesus thing or, you know, we might, you know, get shipped out of here. And have to go to Minnesota in the wintertime or something. That's not what's happening. They're under Roman oppression. And they're like, well, we, we better do something. Or why? It's just a reminder that we are slaves to predictability. We want to know we will take something that's unhealthy. We'll take something that's unproductive. We'll take something even that's painful as long as it's predictable. We fear 
what we can't predict. We don't, we don't like, that's why we don't like change. We want everything to stay the same. And yet we live in a world that's constantly changing. And yet we serve a God who at salvation justified us and set us on a course of sanctification where every moment of our lives in Christ, we're on a path of change. And it's insanity for us to... Well, why would we rebel against change? We're people of change. Everything that's alive changes. A Christian that doesn't change is not living. Certainly not reading the Word of God. So the Bible says, And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You all know nothing, nor do you... uh, Consider that it is expedient or that it's good for us that one man should die for the people. And that the whole, then the whole nation should perish. So, hmm. So what we have here is this council gathered together. The, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the high priests and the Pharisees. Now, understand these, what this council represents. The Sadducees, they're not... Uh, although they're, they hold religious titles, they're really not religious at all by nature. The Sadducees were political appointees. They were, they were wealthy. They, they had very uh, prestigious positions of authority. And so not only did the Jews, uh, you know, pay them what, what their money and their, their wealth didn't just come from their own people, but also the, the Roman government subsidized them so that they would keep peace over the, the region and they would keep the people, you know, under control. They, listen, they didn't believe the Bible. The only thing they marginally believed were, was the Pentateuch, the first five books in the Bible, the books of Moses. Other than that, they didn't believe. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't, they didn't believe in the afterlife. They certainly didn't believe in resurrection, they were super liberal. They would, have, they would love Washington, D.C. today. They would just talk about God, but it was just so shallow and so uh, just meaningless. It was ridiculous. That's the Sadducees. Then the Pharisees, they were deeply religious, as we've seen. I mean, they're ultra-Orthodox and devoted to the, to the point where they're just you know, purveyors of this insane legalism. They're not political at all. They're super strict in their, their following of the Scripture. They not only follow, believed all of the, the, the Old Testament, but they also put the oral law right up there with it. And so they were constantly creating more things for people to, to, to live under and the burdens for people to carry. So these two groups, as you can imagine, didn't get along at all. They had nothing in common. They, were, they hated each other. The only thing that they hated more than each other was Jesus. So for Jesus' sake, they come together and form a council and begin this process of discussing what are they going to do now that this one is going around and he's doing miracles. Now here's what I want you to see about this whole issue of discussion. There are discussions that are going around, uh, going on around us every single day. There are discussions that are going on, 
you know, at the ball field. They're going on in our workplaces. They're going on at school. They're going on with our extended family members. There's a lot of discussion going on everywhere that you go amongst people about spiritual things. And they don't mind having conversations about spiritual things. In fact, they will freely talk about spiritual things. Uh, They've learned to uh, talk about spiritual things in a non-offensive way. You can just water things down to such a degree that it won't be offensive to anybody. And you just sort of blend everything together into one big melting pot. And so it's all just going to be, you know, fine. And so wherever you go, you'll, you'll overhear standing in line at the bank or while you're working out in the gym, you'll overhear conversations about spiritual things all the time. I hear it all the time. When I'm incognito, that is. I hear it. And here's what I notice. People feel quite free to to express what they think and feel. They're They're not afraid to talk to each other about their opinion about God. So why are we afraid? Why do we often keep our mouth shut and just... Let them talk around us. Why don't we interject into the conversation and be more bold, be more intentional about what the Bible actually says about God and what is actually true about those who follow Him? You know, isn't it something that God would bring us to this text on the day that we'll be having the fall festival so that we could all kind of spend some time thinking about the discussions that we might have. You know, every every single day, we had a a seminar a few weeks ago on communication and conflict resolution. And as I was preparing for that, I was just, you know, pulling all my notes together and thinking some things through. And I was reminded again that on a daily basis... Uh, the average person speaks 6,000 words. Well, the average man, the average woman, that's 9,000, but that's a story for another day, right? Lisa's here this morning. I'm just going to drop all that. But 3,000 extra words anyway. 6,000 words. That's a lot of words. What are we talking about 6,000 words? What's so... What, what dominates those 6,000 words? You know, the Scripture says in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, For every idle word men may speak, they will give account in the day of judgment. For every idle word will give account in the day of judgment. I think that's being pretty blunt, don't you? I think that's a good reminder of the discussions that we have and the things that we say or the things that we don't say.
What would we, what would we say today to the people that we meet out there on the football field? You know, don't be the weirdo that, you know, is walking around, uh, you know, walking up to strangers and just going straight up into their face and saying, you know, do you know Jesus loves you? Or, you know, do you know what will happen to you if you die tonight? You're just weird. Don't do that. I'm just telling you. It's weird. Why don't you walk up to people and say, hey, what's your name? Tell them your name. Say, ask them a question like, you know, oh, how old are your kids? Or, you know, is this your first time to come to the, the, our fall festival? Or have you been to it before? You know, they say, oh, yeah, we come every year. Then why don't you ask them, say, well, what's your favorite part? Well, what's, what do you, what do you, I mean, of course they're going to say skee-ball. But other than that, you know what I mean? <laughs> Besides skee-ball, what else do you like? Why don't you try that? Just talk to them. Say, well, you really, you got a lovely family. That's really great that I'm, I'm able to meet you, tell them your name. Say, you know what, if you ever, if you ever want to come to church, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to meet you at the front so that, you know, you could come in with me. Or, you know, have you ever thought about, you know, let me tell you about all the programs that we have for kids. It's unbelievable. I mean, no matter what age your kids are, there's, there's wonderful things for them to be involved in. I mean, listen, they know the, the, the scariness of the world that they live in. They, they know, and you know, tell them. Say, you know what, I just, I don't know if you think this, but I just want to make sure that you know, we're not, we're not perfect people by a long shot. And so don't think that we're all a bunch of perfect people, and don't think that we all think that we are, because we, we know we're not. Pastor Tony tells us every week we're not. He really does. Then he says, I love you. It's really confusing, but he does that all the time. So why don't, why don't we do this? Let's all just stand up. Just stand up for a minute and kind of get your blood flowing, okay? See all of you that hate change? Okay, now, on the count of three, why don't you just uh, pretend we're at the fall festival and just talk to somebody around you, okay? One, two, three, go ahead. There you go. Don't be weird, Rod. Don't be weird. All right. Okay. How many people got saved? Who just got saved? Anybody just get saved? Okay. How, did anybody, any weird people come up to you? Uh, there's a few weirdos in here. Okay, we need to weed them out. All right, you can sit down now. Just consider that a, a, another step in your sanctification right there. Now listen, I want to show you something. Get your pen 
and go back in to the first verse in verse 45. And I want you to, if, you, if you're saved and you're writing your Bible, then this would be a good place for you to just make a little notation to yourself because it's easy to miss. Verse 45 says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in Him. Now what strikes me about that verse is many of the Jews who had come to Mary. The gospel uses a person. Just, just put a little box around Mary or underline Mary and just make a reminder to yourself that you see Mary, the gospel uses a person. The gospel wants to use you. Wants to use you where you work. Wants to use you with your extended family. Wants to use you. You, you have to, have to speak up. You have to get in the discussion. You have to use the words that you have. You have to relate to people. We're the vehicle by which the gospel travels. And so we have to make a, we make a conscious choice. We, it's, there's choices on both sides of the fence. The people that we're sharing with have, make a conscious choice, whether to follow Jesus or to reject Him. But we, as His children, also make a conscious choice whether or not we are going to speak up for Him or not. And whether, whichever side of the fence you're on, there's choices that are going to be made. And, and I just I want you to, to think about this. We make our choices, and our choices turn around and make us. You see, the choices that someone makes for or against Christ is going to determine everything about them. But the choices that we make for or against what God's called us to are going to determine everything about us in Christ, about how our lives are, are spent, about about what we experience when we stand face to face before Him, about what are we doing, how are we stewarding what God's given us. You make a choice, and I make a choice, and we all make a choice. Nobody's forcing. Isn't that amazing? You know, God could have, could have created a system by where those whom He saved, he could, have, he could have put obligations on that. You know, he could have put performance checks on that. And he could, have, he could have made it, and it would have been totally fair if he made a system whereby those who were saved, if they don't make the choice to speak up on his behalf, one of your limbs just falls off. He could have done that. And we'd all be, we'd all be evangelistic machines. But he didn't do that. He doesn't force us. We make a choice. And that choice has unbelievable consequences in our lives. Just as those who we talk to. So there's division when the gospel comes. There's discussion. And then thirdly, there's determination. Determination. I mean, there is a fierce determination. I mean... As much as Jesus is determined to be blunt and forthright, as much as Jesus is determined to eradicate 
ambiguity, as much as the Bible is set in opposition to lukewarmness, that, that, that Jesus would say, I'd rather you be hot or cold. But if you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Is there a, a more determined way to say that? No. Look at the determination of those in opposition. Look at verse 53. Then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no long, longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there into the country near the wilderness to the city of Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near. This is the Passover. In other words, we're now uh, careening towards the, the Last Supper. We're, we're about to move into the triumphal entry. We're moving towards the crucifixion. I mean, the, the gospel of John, as we know it, is now coming to an end. And we have turned, and Jesus is about to set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. But, but there's this little interlude right here where the determination to kill him, and so he retreats to Ephraim, about 15 miles north of Bethany. He retreats to Ephraim, and he remains there. And so the Passover time comes, and so people are flooding into Jerusalem, and the Bible says that they're coming in there to purify themselves. Verse 56, then they sought Jesus. They're looking for him. He is a wanted man. He's a marked man. When you're walking through Jerusalem, there's, there's posters on all the, the, the telephone poles with his picture. and says, you know, if you see this man, there's a reward. He's number one on the list in the post office. They sought him and they spoke amongst themselves and they stood in the temple. It's the irony of this. They're standing in the temple and they're saying, well, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast? I mean, oh my gosh, I get a headache thinking about it. I feel like saying, moron, what do you... He just rose somebody from the dead. He's not worried about you. What are you going to do to him? I mean, after everything that you know he's done, he, he's not worried about you. But they're determined. Their determination is just blinded by everything that's around them. So both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was that he should report it, that they might seize him. So we all know where this is going. But let's just look at this determination for a minute. It's, it's just the, the capacity for those who are in opposition to the gospel, when there's, when there's discussion, uh, you know, there's obvious division and uh, there's just this determination against the things that you're saying to the extent that maybe you share your personal testimony and people that you are related to who, or that love or people that have known you for a long span of time would just say, I just don't believe that. And yet they're looking straight at you. I was talking a couple weeks ago on Sunday night about my own struggles with my own extended family and their determination against the gospel. And I was talking about how even 
when it comes down to the fact where I just simply say, you've known me all my life. I've known you all my life. I'm radically different than the person you used to know. You cannot deny the fact that I'm radically different, that everything about me has changed. My priorities have changed. My Everything has changed. And you can't say that it's changed in a negative way, that I'm a much healthier person. I'm a much better person. I'm, I'm, I'm undeniably different than the person you knew growing up. And you have changed none. You're still the same person that I've always known. How do you explain that? And the determination goes right through it. Just. And if I sit at, if I sit at the table and I say, I start talking about the Easter bunny. Everybody likes the Easter bunny. And I talk about how the Easter ball, boy, we're just so excited about Easter. And Kaylee and Cameron get to be excited about the Easter bunny coming. And, you know, remember the things that you used to do. And how the Easter bunny would do this and the Easter bunny would do that. And you know what? Everyone in the room fully is aware and knows that the Easter bunny is a figment of our imagination and a complete myth. And nobody's offended. No one's offended at all. And I can say that I I 100% believe in the Easter bunny. And you know what they say? Well, if that's what you want to do, go right ahead. But when I say Jesus... The room just erupts. Now, wait a minute. If you think that Jesus is just a figment of my imagination, then why don't you respond to that conversation the same way you do the Easter Bunny? You ever thought about that? Why is there such a stark difference? Because Jesus isn't the Easter Bunny. And when the gospel goes out, it brings this determination. I mean, now, now let's just think for a second. These, these are men that we're reading about who are very religious and whose beef with Jesus is that he has performed healings and miracles on the Sabbath. That's their beef. And their determination is such that it has led them now to be basically to put a hit out on somebody. To take murder to a public level. I mean, think about this. This is, this is determination like you can't imagine. Like you've never seen unless you've ever shared the gospel in a hostile environment. Then you know exactly how this goes. Because the gospel will often produce an irrational anger. It's irrational. Which only authenticates our message. You see, as soon as the room erupts in anger, I merely point out, why are you so upset? 
See, they didn't even realize they had gotten. So I said, look, take a breath. Your face is red. You, you, your veins are poking. You look like me when I'm preaching. What's wrong? Are you okay? Are you okay? I mean, we were talking about the Easter bunny and everything was fine. And then I said, Jesus, and you flipped out. People have this great determination. In, and as John has exposed this to us through the course of this gospel, we've seen that, remember in John chapter 3, the whole Nicodemus event, and then after that in verse 19, Jesus said, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, the Easter bunny doesn't threaten their deeds. It doesn't threaten their way of life. It doesn't threaten their significance. It doesn't threaten their morality. Jesus does. He brings division. He causes discussion. And there is great determination. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that I want you to, to know to stay the course. And that in my life, this is what I've found to be true so many times. Often, the resistance to Jesus is greatest just before a breakthrough. That really, what's most discouraging to me is when there's not great determination. When there's just apathy. But when the when the room gets real tense and there's a lot of hostility comes in, that's a good sign. It's, it's uncomfortable, but it's a good sign because it's, it's a reminder that there's a war in the souls of men and women. And that that war, when that war is raging, it's oftentimes on the other side of that war where surrender comes. The Scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're to abstain from sinful desires which war against the soul. You see, they, they know that there's a war. And so I'm encouraged when there's great determination against the gospel. And I hope that you are too. And I don't ever want you or us as a people to be a people who, are, uh, who become pragmatic about sharing the gospel. In other words, who who would base what we do on what we define as success. That's ridiculous. We don't... Listen, we're going to go out to West Wortham this afternoon and we're going to set up all of our games and we're going to, we're going to have a, a, a great uh, countenance on our face and we're going to have a smile and a heart full of love and a truckload of candy to give out. And let's suppose nobody comes. We're not doing this. Listen, our God is so great that He's worth going out and doing all that for no one. That's how great He is. And so if, let's say not one person comes, then you know what? We'll just all eat a bunch of candy and worship. Amen? That's what we'll do. Praise the Lord. All right. Division, discussion, determination. Let's finish. Number four, design. See, there's a great design by God in all of this. And it may be the most important part of this whole text. In verse 49, when we remember 
where Caiaphas speaks up and he said, you don't know anything at all, nor do you consider that it's better for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And then look at verse 51 and 52. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And that, that na- not that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. There's probably a whole sermon just in that. In other words, in that moment, God used Caiaphas to speak prophecy. In other words, in that moment, Jesus' doom was sealed, although it was already sealed. But God is just using this Hostile enemy. Now, he doesn't have to do this. I mean, Isaiah 58 tells us everything we already would have needed to know. But, but he does anyway. And it's more than just God. God here is not just, although he is saying that this is what is about to happen, that Jesus is going to give his life for the nation, but not just for that nation, but for all the people, praise God, the Gentiles that are scattered abroad. It, 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 it is that, and it does shatter. It, it is beyond my comprehension how somebody can, can claim to follow Jesus and then on the other side of their mouth have any tendency of racism. Folks, look at the Bible. What does it say? All the people, all the ethnos, all the people groups from all over the world, get over it. God is gathering a people, all the people, not all the people that look the same, all the people. And it's a good thing because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be in because we don't look like those people. So we should be glad about that. And we should be excited about, and I know we are, but it just is a reminder of, look at what God's showing us here. That in the midst of this, These terrible events where they're putting a mark on Jesus' life and they're seeking Him out to kill Him. What does your heart do when it reads that He didn't say this on His own authority? But He said that prophesying that Jesus would give His life for a people. That the next time you find yourself in the midst of a catastrophe, I want you to remember this text right here. This is God's way of saying, I know this looks like a catastrophe to you, but I'm, I'm, I'm all up in this thing. All these All these events that are happening around you, all of these details that are happening, all of the things that you're, you know, fearful of and and, and, and stressed out about that are causing you to have anxiety attacks and that are that are causing you all sorts of worry and fretting. Listen, Jesus is is reminding us God is 
is in the midst of all of this and he's working all of this and he's not distracted. He's not missing this. He's not asleep at the wheel. He didn't lose track of what's going on. His sovereignty is fully intact in the midst of all of this craziness that's going on. Man, that's a, that's a great encouragement for us today. Because it'd be real easy to get real stressed out and real worked up about all the things we see going on around us and to, and to think, oh my goodness, what's happening here? And, oh, is, and, 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 and what, we, what we know and what we think is slipping through our fingers and things are changing and things are getting out of control and what's God going to do and how's all this going to settle down? God's in control. And God's doing the things that God chooses to do. And they're always the best things. They're always the things that yield the most fruit. They're always the things that bring Him the most glory. They're always the thing that are in accordance with His will and purpose. And He's not thrown off by the evilness of men and the schemes and the... No. And he's going to do what he's going to do in his way and in his time. So the crucifixion of Jesus was not a tragedy which God used for our good. It was a loving set of events which God planned for our good. You see, the whole time that it appears to all the people who are living at this time that everything is unraveling before their very eyes, it's the story that we already know at Christmas time unfolding. And so I just want you to know today that wherever you are, whatever you're facing, God is always good and He's always wise. And He's always sovereign and He's always trustworthy. And you can trust Him and you can lean on Him. And you can rest in His power and His authority and His sovereignty. I think maybe the hard word in, in this prophetic reality right here is that there really is no place for disappointment. For the follower of Jesus. I mean, if God is who He says He is, and I know that I'm His, and we know that He said that nothing can take me out of the palm of His hand, then wherever I am and whatever's going on around me is happening as I am in the palm of His hand. And so long as I'm there, and so long as I know that nothing can remove me from that, then why would I be, why would I be disappointed? Why would I be uh, fraught with anxiety and worry? God, you really do got this. So he used Caiaphas. What? I mean, Caiaphas is a jerk. He's a jerk. He's an enemy. He used Caiaphas. 
to remind me and you today, he's got this thing. So when the voices around you are saying this and that, listen, you know there's going to be, you know there's going to be division. You know there's going to be a lot of discussion going on. There's going to be great determination. But don't ever forget that God has a design in all of this. And he's the king. He's the king. And today is just like any other day. He's my daddy. And I hope he's your daddy. And I hope that you know the God that will not allow any other, any other relationship to rival him. Because no other relationship should. Nothing rivals him. Nothing. He's our king. He's our king. And so we will make the choice to serve him, to be faithful to him. And find joy in any situation because we're in the palm of his hand. He's in control. He's in control. Let's be like Lazarus today. Let's go talk to people as if we knew what Lazarus knew. What would happen? Oh, man. I wouldn't be upset when people didn't respond to what I was sharing with them. I'd be sad for them. Are you sure? Do you know how good this God is I'm talking about? He's so good. He just he gave his son that his people would not perish. That's me and that's you. That's our God. Let's stand and bow our heads.